Take your Bible and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in this, uh, in this passage, um, we have a continuation of uh, Paul's introductory remarks uh, to the Thessalonian church. Uh, he's talking about the Christian life. He wants them to understand what the Christian life is really about. The Christian life is uh, something that was new to these young Christians in Thessalonica. And so they had a lot of questions. They, they took a lot of wrong turns. Have you ever, I'm sure you've each raised a child or seen a grandchild, and when that child is growing up, sometimes the child will do the wrong thing. The child will go, start walking in the wrong direction. You have to stop the child and bring the child back. Sometimes even as an adult, uh, we, we make decisions as a 20-year-old that as a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old, we wouldn't make. Um, people make the wrong decision. People mess up. The Thessalonian Christians started uh, listening perhaps to some, some wrong prophets, had some different ideas, perhaps some ideas that they carried over from their pre-Christian beliefs into their current uh, system or understanding of Christ. And so they, they needed some instruction in what was going to happen, and they needed some of their beliefs changed, some of their behavior needed to be adjusted. And the Christian life is really all about that. It's about having a willingness to change your beliefs or your behavior or both. And uh, sometimes we need to be reminded of that as those who may have walked with Christ for a number of years. We still need to have a willingness to change our beliefs or our behavior or both. And that's what Paul calls these Thessalonian believers too. You know, the funny thing is that many Christians are very resistant to change. It's part of human nature not to want change. You, we want things the way we've always liked them. There's a comfort level there. There's a, a strength there that we can look back and we can rely on what we've known and understood in the past, and, and we don't want things to change. But, and, and I would say this, to, to be sure, not every change is good. Not every change is necessary. Um, you don't want to change your core belief in trusting God, for example. You don't want to change your core beliefs in the strong and fundamental doctrines of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that everything that you believe and you've been taught in the past is always right. There needs to be a willingness to allow God to sharpen our beliefs and to transform our behavior. And when there's not that willingness, when we would say as a Christian, you know, I, I know what I believe, and, and I'm just unwilling to, to change the way I believe, and I'm unwilling to change the way I behave. This is who I am, and I'm not going to let God or anybody change me. There's a real danger there. There's a real danger there that uh, you've fallen into a, a, a trap, and you're going to start sliding away from the Lord. When your first instinct to the very idea of change is resistance, well, you need to be cognizant of the fact that you may be resisting the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, if you don't like change, you are not going to like heaven. Um, I, think, I think heaven's going to be a lot different than what we experience here on earth. I mean, if you think heaven is the place where you get your way all the time, I think you may be in for a shock because heaven is the place where God hits, he gets his way all the time. We just happen to reap the benefits of it 
as we experience that. And so if you've been a Christian for some length of time, I hope that you can look back on your life. Think about what you were like many, many years ago or, or many months ago, or whenever it was that you first gave your life to Christ. Look back on that, and I hope that you're able to see how you've changed since that time. Uh, perhaps you've learned how to be a better husband or a better wife. Perhaps there are some things that you would change as a parent if you could do it all over again. You know, the bad thing about being a parent is, uh, especially with your first child, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just doing your best. And maybe you're just copying what your mom and dad did with you, but you're just trying to simply do your best. And uh, that's why I think parent, grandparents uh, are, seem to be so wise because they've made all their mistakes with their own kids. And uh, now they don't have to make those mistakes again with their grandkids. You know, hopefully whatever it is about life, whether it's being a better husband or a better wife, a better parent, maybe just being a better person, hopefully you've been able to see in your life where things have changed. You've learned some lessons about yourself. You've learned some lessons about God. Hopefully you're more like Christ than you were before. Hopefully some bad habits have been replaced by good habits. And one of the catalysts for change in the Christian life is prayer. Prayer is one of the catalysts for change. And I'll give you an example, and I don't mean it in this way, although this is absolutely true. I don't mean that if you pray, God will change your heart. That's true. That's absolutely true. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this. Have you ever overheard someone praying for you? Maybe as a child, you walked in on your mom or your grandma on her knees, and she's praying for you. Have you ever heard someone, ever overheard someone praying for you? When a mom or dad is sincerely praying for a child, and that child hears it, what happens? Just the child hearing it has a deep impact on that child. That burns in their memory, even if they're still resistant to it. I can tell you countless stories of many people who, as teenagers, heard their mom or dad praying for them, but they just weren't in the mood to be changed by God. And so they still resisted God, but they remembered, Mama prayed. Mama prayed. That burns in their heart. It has a deep possibility for change. You know, one of the churches I served in uh, when I was in seminary, there was a deacon there who always made quite an impression when it was his turn to pray for the offering. Uh, he would squint his eyes and he would scowl at the congregation. I'm not making this up. He looked like a crusty old sailor. And he would say with a booming voice before he prayed, Would a man rob God? And then he would pray for the offering. Well, there's a part of me that sort of appreciated that because he was being bold with the truth. Um, but I'd say this, it, it wasn't real subtle, but it did make an impression. We're taking up the offering now. When you hear someone praying for you, um, when you overhear that, it can make an impression on your life. And in these verses that we're going to read today, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, just two verses, the Apostle Paul prays that God's goal can be fulfilled in our lives. 
but it can only be fulfilled if, we're allow, if we are willing to allow God to change our belief and our behavior. And so let's look at these two verses. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, here's what we read. To this end, we also pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to deal with these uh, two issues, behavior and belief. And he's going to deal with behavior first, and he's inferring this, and also then belief in verse 12. And I would say this, be willing to change your behavior. Be willing to change your behavior. Don't just accept, well, that's the way I am, and I I can't change. Uh, That's the sorry excuse. Be willing to change your behavior. We need to be what verse 11 says is worthy of our calling. Look at verse 11 again. It says, to this end, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Paul says, I pray that our God will make you worthy, that he will find you worthy of your calling. What does that mean, to be worthy of your calling? What is the calling of God? What's the calling that Paul's talking about? Well, the calling is, I'll tell you what it's not. The calling of God in this context is not the calling to serve God as a vocation. You know, we talk about a man of God being called by God to serve as a pastor, as an evangelist. That's a man of God, we'd say, and, and he's called to, to, to a certain task and maybe to receive some type of financial remuneration from that. Uh, But that's not the calling that Paul's referring to here. This calling in these verses is for all Christians. What the calling of God is this, that God calls each of us to live holy lives right now and to inherit his kingdom when Christ returns. Paul is praying that they will be future tense found worthy of the calling of God. And so it hasn't happened yet. The inference is that when Christ returns, we we will be the recipients, hopefully, of this judgment from God, that we are worthy of the calling that he's called us to. The calling is to live a holy life now and to inherit God's kingdom when Christ returns. So to be, that's what the calling is. To be worthy of our calling means that at the return of Christ, God determines that we have lived in such a way that we may receive the benefits of God's kingdom. Who makes this determination? God does. God alone declares us worthy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, Scripture says, Faithful is he who calls you. And he also will bring it to pass. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, great verse, he, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, God has called you to live a certain way, now do it. Live according to that. Live in a manner worthy of that. 
What are the benefits of God's kingdom? When Christ returns, what are we going to receive? We're going to receive so much, but let me just uh, point out a few things. And these things that, we, that I'm going to point out are simply what's found in verses 7 through 10 of the same chapter. Paul just talked about some of the benefits of the kingdom of God. We're going to receive relief from our persecution and suffering. Verse 7 says that. Unlike those that reject Christ, we'll be with the Lord forever. Look at verse 9. You'll see how they are not with the Lord. But the implication is that we are with the Lord forever. We're going to be glorified, verse 10 begins. And not only that, we're going to be witnesses of the greatest event in the history of humanity. We're going to be witnesses of the return of the king to his kingdom. And so we're going to, be, we're going to receive all of that. And Paul says, I pray that you will be found worthy of all of those benefits of being part of the kingdom of God. So this is the question. Are you living a life worthy of being called into God's kingdom when Jesus returns? Are you wor- living a life worthy of that? In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus told a parable. And it goes like this. We read in verses 1 through 14 that Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes and he said to him friend how did you come in here without wedding clothes and the man was speechless then the king said to the servants bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. Paul says, you need to be dressed for the wedding. You need to live a life worthy of the calling that God has given you. The calling is to live a holy life now. The calling is to be ready for when Christ returns. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me ask a follow-up question. And we're going to delve into an area that uh, you'll have to pay pretty close attention to, or lest you uh, misunderstand. Is entrance into the kingdom of God a matter of faith alone? Or does how we live come into the picture? Does how we live 
determine to some extent or another entrance into the kingdom of God. I think a fairly good analogy, maybe not a perfect one, is to think about what you need to go to a sporting event. We've all been to football games, basketball games, whatever. To enter the stadium, what do you need? You're not going to get into the stadium without a ticket. But how do you get a ticket? Money. The ticket is simply the evidence that your entrance has been paid for. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he paid for your entrance into God's kingdom. But the evidence that your way is paid is how you live your life. In multiple places in Scripture, God tells us, work out your own salvation. He says, bear in mind your work of faith. He says here and elsewhere, live worthy of your calling. Listen very carefully. It is not that you are saved by your activities or by your works. But your works are the evidence of the faith which saves you. A person who claims to have faith but whose life, whose evidence, whose works do not back up that claim really has no faith at all. And you will not enter God's kingdom without a life that corresponds to the faith that you say you have. You and I as Baptists, we believe in the perseverance of God's people. We believe that God will finish what he started. We believe that just as Jesus said that uh, no one will be able to snatch us out of the Father's hand because he is greater than all. We believe that, absolutely. But I want you to understand, it is possible to turn good biblical doctrine into unscriptural attitudes. What do I mean by that? Well, we might wrongly conclude that if God is able to keep us in the palm of his hand and no one can snatch us out of his hand, we might wrongly conclude that, hey, the way I live my life doesn't matter. God is under obligation to save me. We might believe that somehow God is contract, contractually obligated to grant us entrance into heaven simply because we say we have faith in Jesus. But the emphasis of Scripture is this. Prove your faith by your works. Prove it. And if you can't prove your faith by your works, then maybe you really don't have a real faith. Take heed so as not to fall. The ability of God not to lose any of his sheep, that is God's concern. That is God's business. The necessity to live your life as if your salvation depends upon it is your business. And that is your concern. Be very careful to take the good, solid doctrine of God with regard to the permanency of salvation and turn it into a license to live any way that you want to live.
because that is not what Scripture says we can do. If you're serious about living a life worthy of your calling as a kingdom citizen, then what, what, what will happen? One of the things that will happen, we find in verse 11, you're going to desire goodness. Look at verse 11 again. Paul says to this end, we all, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. Think about that. Paul says, I pray that you'll be found worthy of your calling and that God will fulfill every desire you have to be good. To be good. When we were little kids, our mom or grandma or somebody would say, now be good. Be good. We've got a whole society now that laughs at that, ignores that, maybe hasn't even been told that. Be good. But as a Christian, we should have a desire to be good. God is the one who gives us the desire to be good. God is the one who fulfills that desire. And if God is to fulfill your desire to be good, then he has already started this process in you. Already, as a believer, if you're truly a believer, you want to do the right thing. Every day of your life is part of a process that God calls sanctification. God's goal in this process called sanctification is to make you more like Christ. It's to make you more holy. And so if you're a believer, in your heart, you truly want to be like Christ. And as a believer in your heart, when you fail to be like Christ, when you sin and you stumble and you give in to temptation, what happens to you? Conviction from the Holy Spirit. And you're miserable as a believer. You find no joy in that sin. And if you do, it's just joy, it's sin for a season. It's just momentary. Overwhelmingly, there comes a sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit that that is not how God's children are called to live. You want to be like Christ. As a believer, you want to grow closer to God, and God will fulfill that desire someday. And if you're serious about living a life that is worthy of your calling as a kingdom citizen, not only will God fulfill his, your desire for goodness, but God will empower you to do it as well. Verse 11 concludes not only that Paul prays that God would fulfill every desire for goodness, but also in the work of faith with power. God will empower you to do these things. God does not give you commands without giving you the ability to carry them out. God does not say the spiritual equivalent of, go jump over the moon. He doesn't do that. We don't have the ability to go jump over the moon. What God does, he gives us commands and then he gives us the power to accomplish those commands. The Holy Spirit lives within you. He dwells within you. He is the one who empowers you. Jesus said in John 16, verse 17, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What we have is so much, through the Holy Spirit is so much more powerful than what the disciples who walked alongside Jesus himself had. They had God next to them. But we have God dwelling within us. At all times. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we read, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's what God is up to. He is transforming us. He's empowering us to live a holy life. Something that we in our sin cannot do, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to live a holy life. And so we need to be willing to change our behavior, and also we need to be willing to examine and even change some of our beliefs. Verse 12, we read, So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul has done in this prayer, and it's really brilliant. In this final little prayer, in verses 11 and 12 of this first chapter of Thessalonians, Paul has said in verse, verse 11, you need to be willing to change your behavior. And now in verse 12 he says, also your beliefs. Then in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, Paul is going to talk about their beliefs, some of the beliefs that Thessalonians needed to change. Chapter 3, he's going to talk about their behaviors that need to change as well. You know, the amazing thing about verse 12 is that it teaches something that maybe, maybe we've not considered very much. It teaches something that I might call reciprocal glorification. Not only will Jesus Christ be glorified in us, but we will be glorified in him. Look at that. It says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you, and you glorified in him. You know, Jesus was not just a man that lived many years ago, but he is God. And as God, he is somebody that we can actually dwell in. We, can, we are literally in Christ right now. We will be glorified in his presence, and he will be glorified in us. We see this type of mutual glorification between the Father and the Son. John chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. John 17, 1, the high priestly prayer. Jesus said, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And later in John 17, beginning in verse 21, Jesus prayed that they may all be one. He's talking about us. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may, uh, that, uh, that they be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. What an incredible prayer from the lips of Jesus on the very night in which he was betrayed. 
Jesus prayed for you and me. And he taught us something very important, that we are in God and God is in us. He dwells within us. And so when Jesus returns, we're going to glorify him. But we can also glorify him right now. How do we do that? By believing and behaving as we should. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12 again, so that you'd walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you believe God and when you behave as God would have you behave, other people can glorify God as well through your actions. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter wrote, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's going to be a lot of people, a lot of people, on the day when Jesus returns, who are going to say, those crazy Christians were right. I should have listened. There will be people, I hope, within your own lifetime who may think evil of you, who may think less of you, who by looking at your good behavior and your beliefs might be able, before they even die, to say, I think I'm wrong. And I think that person who believes in Christ, I think that person is right. And I want what they have. I want to be saved. When you believe the right thing and you behave in the right manner, God is glorified. And what did Jesus say? He said that when the Father is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. All men to himself. You know, the only way any of this is possible, the only way for you to live a holy life, to live in a manner worthy of your calling as a kingdom citizen, whether we're talking about today or whether we're talking about when Jesus returns, is to do this according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how verse 12 ends. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is what God is up to. Ultimately, this is what God does. Every good thing that you say, every good thing that you do, every good thing that you think is ultimately from God. It is something that God has done. He has given you the ability, even as a believer in Christ, to resist Him, to do your own thing, to turn your back, to be selfish. But you don't want to do that, do you? As a believer in Christ, you want to look upon your Heavenly Father someday and be able to say that you love Him and that throughout your life you loved Him. There's nothing stronger than a father's love for his child. And on the flip side of that, there's nothing that a child wants more than to be loved by his father we don't have to earn God's love he's our heavenly father we don't have to earn it he already loves us but what we do have to do 
is be willing to say, I receive that love and I allow you to change me.